This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Joseph Malachewski, Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic and Assistant Dean for Curriculum at the Mayo Clinic Alex School of Medicine on the pathologist's role in medical education. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Malachewski. My pleasure, Dr. Carter. So I want to get into pathologists as uh, medical educators, and maybe the way to do that is, could you kind of share with our audience, what's your origin story? How did you get interested in medical school education? My story, uh, it starts a long time ago, probably. It's more direct than most, kind of punctuated by very specific moments in my life that kind of corralled me down to where I wound up. It probably started back in fifth grade uh, at a very particular moment, a very precise day where our our teacher was showing us a film and it was a a Frank Capra film called Hemo the Magnificent. If you haven't seen the film, I highly recommend it. It's a great film uh, from the 1950s. It was produced in collaboration with Bell Labs. It's a fantastic, partially animated, partially live action documentary series about the circulation and blood, essentially, as the name implies, right? Hemo the Magnificent. And in that film, there were these clips of, uh, you know, an actual heart beating and valves opening and closing and little red blood cells like moving in capillaries and slowing down as they got to the capillaries. And this was like actual footage under a microscope. And I saw that and I just, I went like totally gaga. Like I had to know everything that I could possibly know about the heart. It just became this passion, this hobby, this thing that I became completely obsessed with. And so I I pretty much knew from that point on that whatever I did, it was going to be something about the heart. Medicine was kind of by virtue of exclusion, like that was kind of the the thing where I I gravitated to quite naturally. So I I entered college thinking that that was my route and that that's where I was going. And with that in mind, I was taken under the wing of, of a man named Doug Lucky, who was an amazing molecular biologist. And I worked in his lab and Uh, kind of got interested in his other passions as well, which were pedagogy and teaching and how students learn. And he had this really great project that was ongoing about collaborative inquiry among undergrads in laboratory experiences, teaming them up and getting them to work in these small teams and getting them to learn critical thinking and reasoning and all that. And, And then he was also using these really novel assessment things to gauge learning and gauge understanding. And I thought that was pretty cool too. So it was at that point where I started trying to think of ways I could kind of blend these two passions of my life, like cardiac stuff and student learning and teaching. And then I went to medical school, still pursuing the heart thing. And and there in medical school, I was introduced to a group of pathologists who they had it all. They were the most passionate educators I had ever encountered in my life. They were so enthusiastic. They were all happy. They were thrilled to be at work every day. And they all had their own niche areas of expertise in the human body. And so I was like, this is great. I can study the heart and I could do all this cool molecular biology stuff and lab stuff that I love and I can teach all day long. And 
pathology was all about solving puzzles and kind of logic and detective work. And I was like, this is the best ever. And so from that moment on, it was a surefire thing. And pathology just afforded me the opportunity to blend my interests in such a seamless way. And even, even hobby horse type interests like photography and working with tools and technology and things like that. Pathology is just a, a natural place for a lot of that stuff. And so it was the, the right place for me. And uh, the medical education part just really stems from that and really wanting to share my passions in the most effective way that I can to get other people excited and passionate about their things or to help people find their own passions and interests. And that's really what the core of education is, I think, is getting people to get excited and enthused about their areas of interest and figure out how to learn and be effective in those domains. I love your clip there. I think we're going to have to like cut that out when you were talking about pathologists having it all <laughs> in do. terms of we... recruiting to our specialty. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a very similar origin story to you that resonated and you had it put so succinctly. <laughs> we're going to have to chop that out and, and use that. As I was listening to your story, Hemo the Magnificent, talking about collaborative inquiry, which, you know, it seems like a lot of what we're talking about now about interprofessional education, we're having to work in mm. teams in medicine and healthcare, yeah. and that being such an explicit area of, of development. And then to your point on getting people excited, it seems like that kind of comes full circle back to your Hemo the Magnificent origin. I'm curious, you have a very big role in our medical school, leadership role. And so you're really on the forefront on how are we teaching and, and learning these things. What are we learning? Because we have uh, pathologists, laboratory professionals that listen to this podcast who might be doing formal teaching and programs or maybe informally with their colleagues as they're practicing pathology. And so I was wondering if you could give our audience maybe what are we learning about better ways to educate? Well, that's a great question. And I think one of the things that we've known, it, it, it's not a new concept, certainly, we've known this for decades, is that the old passive model of I speak and you listen, or you know, I speak at you, or the sage on the stage, so to speak, that really is, is, is not the way people do learn effectively or want to learn. There's a very small percentage of the population that enjoys that model. People learn best and engage most effectively when they're doing, when they are stepping through things themselves, when they're making mistakes, when they're failing actively, when they're doing something. And I think that's where medical education is kind of gravitating in recognition of the fact that people learn best in those practical realms. And people get most excited in those practical realms too. I mean, again, remember back to medical school, the first day that you kind of felt like a doctor that day, you, you donned the white coat or, you know, the stethoscope or whatever it was, there was kind of that, but you really felt like a doctor the first day you walked into the clinic and met your first patient and introduced like that, that was where the hair on the back of your neck stood up, right? That's that moment where like, oh, wow, this, this is real. And there's definitely a movement to get that experience earlier and more continuously throughout the curriculum now in recognition of the fact that those meaningful experiences where again the hair's kind of standing up on the back of your neck and your this and all that you're learning the best then those things are imprinted in you again when you talk to most of your colleagues they won't often remember every journal article they've ever read 
but gosh, they remember a lot of the cases that they've seen and worked through, especially the hard ones, especially the ones they made mistakes on and the like. And so in recognition of that, medical education is starting to reflect more of that model, I think. And so in a sense, almost, what's really old is almost new again. And that's really the apprentice model, what we're talking about now. I think the patient-facing clinical disciplines, um, traditionally things like medicine, surgery, and those, I, I know, I think you feel similarly to the way I do it. It's always a little bit teeth grinding when somebody refers to pathology as a non-clinical discipline, because of course we know it's an incredibly clinical discipline, but those traditional patient-facing clinical domains of surgery, medicine, pediatrics, and those, they've recognized this for some time, and they've really been trying to do that more longitudinal experience in those domains from day one. And for pathologists and for the pathologists in the audience here, I think our challenge is to find ways of doing that with our discipline as well. I think it's a real shame that most medical students graduating from medical school don't get a good appreciation for what a pathologist does day in and day out. And I think not because I think we need that every person going to medical school wants to be a pathologist, but I firmly believe that every student graduating from medical school must learn to use the lab effectively because most of the data that's in the patient record is derived from the lab. And so unless you know how to use that, unless you know how to order tests and how to interpret them, you're really not going to be as effective of a physician as you could be. So in light of that, I think it's our challenge as laboratory professionals to provide that similar experience and not think of only teaching our students in the traditional Flexner biomedical model of, you know, we must teach you microbiology and then the basics of pathology and then the organ systems blocks in these very formal lectures. I think we need to bust out of that. And I think we need to learn to do our teaching in our daily work. And I think medical students need to be incorporated with us um, and they need to learn microbiology at the bench and they need to learn about immunology in the blood bank and in places where it's truly practical and they can actually see why it's important to understand how antigens and antibodies interact and all these types of things because there's a patient on the other side of this plate or this tube and we've got to get this result out and here's how we do it. If they see that and they see how the pathologists are reaching patients that way and how it's integrating and weaving in all the basic sciences in a deliberate way, man, I think we're going to have to beat them up with a stick from coming into pathology because it's super exciting when you get to see that side of it. Much less so if, if your lens, so to speak, that you're viewing pathology through is this like, oh, I, I go sit in a lecture hall and I learn about Robbins all day. Like that only takes you so far. Yeah, it's really that challenge of almost an abstraction of what the clinical practice is. I, I hear what you're saying, yeah. and so much of the meaning is lost. And then people, I think, to your point, aren't necessarily the best uh, users of the pathology information or collaborators understanding how can they change their local practice to better support their clinical practice. I was kind of curious, and I'm really curious about your thoughts that I wanted to dive into is about this idea of, and I don't know if I, <laughs> if I heard you accurately, but talking about active learning, you're talking about, I think I heard you say failing actively. And I think that's a beautiful concept that, I mean, we're talking about in the professional world at our institution here, we talk about talking about our failures. We need to do that more uh, so we can learn from that. And I know in, in the education world, you said yourself about how it's such a, a 
powerful teacher these challenging cases. I'm curious, you know, we've got students listening who might feel part of the advantage, I think, of the lecture hall is you can kind of uh, <laughs> put your head down a little bit, blend in, uh, not necessarily be called out if you, you don't know. And so there might be a student kind of interest in uh, not necessarily being as active. And then also on the faculty side, it's very easy to continue to be the sage on the stage that, that feels powerful yeah. and it's magnanimous. <laughs> to, yeah. And so I'm curious for both those sides, how do you kind of address the idea of how can faculty make it a safe environment? Just saying it doesn't necessarily make it so. And then from the students' perspective, how can we get them to give it a try? What you point out there is the key, and that's creating the safe space. It's, it's making it safe to fail, making the room padded enough where everybody feels like they can bump into holes and hit the floor occasionally, and it's going to be okay because we're all in this together. And I think the best way you can do that as an instructor is leading by example and freely admitting your mistakes when you make them, admitting the limits of your knowledge, saying, gosh, I don't know this either, but here's how we're going to figure it out. We're going to look this up. We're going to look this up, and you're going to see how I do this. And the more you kind of crouch down and get with them and show them, like, look, I'm your guide here today. I'm going to show you how we're going to navigate this, but we don't necessarily know everything we're going to see, and we're going to have to figure that out and sort that out together. That's critical. Again, that vulnerability is picked up by other people, especially by students. And if they see that you're being genuine and you're being vulnerable and you're willing to share and reach and make mistakes and admit them and course correct when needed, they're going to follow your example. As the guide, most students will follow that and they will then feel safe and they will feel okay to make mistakes. And I'm a big proponent on not really letting people be passive in the room. And I know there's lots of different schools of thought on that. And some people say, well, you've got to let people break out of their own shell and everything. But in my experience, if you're being careful and you're intentional, and again, vulnerable and genuine, and those two words I keep coming back to because I think they're so important, even the most passive students will respond to that and they'll give it their all. And after a few times of being called on, all of a sudden, they're freely advancing things on their own without any prompting. Because again, they've tried it a few times and they know that it's safe and they're not going to be looked at like they're inferior or incompetent or anything like that by their colleagues or especially by you as their instructor. So again, you got to lead by example in that domain. And that's the only way to make it work. It's uh, brilliant advice for our audience. For more laboratory education, including a listing of conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. I was wondering now if we could kind of shift to thinking about your role as assistant dean of curriculum at the medical school. For our listeners that might be teaching in a more formalized program, how you bring about and navigate curricular change. And I, I ask you this question because I think for a lot of us out there in the world, our teaching style tends to be a personal thing. <laughs> and we have a lot of pride in how we each do our classroom. And so, you know, you really occupy a very powerful and interesting leadership position. So how do you bring about navigate change at the medical school with the curriculum? Yeah, it, certainly there's not a lack of ideas 
around here. You know, Mayo, it's, it's the cross we bear here of working with the best of the best people in the world and smart, innovative people who are passionate about everything, including medical education. They're constantly bringing forth ideas. And so, you know, my role is not as a, you know, an ideator, you know, it's not me sitting in a room kind of pontificating and thinking, oh, what will the next great thing be? It's really trying to manage all of these amazing ideas that my brilliant colleagues are all constantly bringing forth to make things better or to change things. So the model that we have here at Mayo is similar to what the structure is at most medical schools and that we have a multidisciplinary curriculum committee, which is sanctioned by our accrediting body, the LCME. And that curriculum committee is the job there to basically serve as that melting pot where all the ideas flow, we get proponents come and present various ideas. And then our job is to take all of these ideas and figure out, okay, how can we make these work? Are they worthy incorporation? And the problem that we often deal with is almost every one of these ideas are amazing and great. And we're all like, yeah, we gotta be doing that too. And it's just trying to fit it into this window of a, a, what is usually a four-year model. And that's the hardest part is figuring out how we're going to prioritize and triage and then deploy these things. And the deploying comes with all of its own uh, idiosyncrasies and challenges as well, like any kind of change management anywhere that you do. It's tough. Communication is difficult. I think we deal with some uh, very unique challenges here at Mayo because we're a three campus program. And so we basically have three campuses around the country that we're coordinating and integrating all of that into. And so communication is hard enough in one big medical center like this, like we have here in Rochester. And when you expand that to include the giant medical infrastructure in Scottsdale, Arizona, as well as Jacksonville, Florida, it is a real challenge to do that communication thing. So we're still finding our way there because you know the, the notion of a, a, a three-site medical school is still pretty unique and novel. We're the one place really in the world that has that. And we're still finding our way uh, about how to communicate effectively and how to make sure we're all on the same page with things. That's really a, our model is to have proponents come to a committee and then we debate and figure out how we're going to implement or how we can make advances on what people are bringing forth to us. I want to dive down just and ask you one follow-up question yeah. on thinking about, you know, there's probably some of us that are interested in a position that you have here. And you bring up the idea of how you're really managing, you know, a stellar team and the difficulty coming in the prioritization and such. Was there something that you did that prepared you for this role? Or is there some piece of advice you have that are people that are interested in taking that next step and taking more of a leadership role in education at their institution? Like anything else, I, I'm a firm believer in the, in the precept that success is 90% showing up and doing so consistently over time. And the hard part of that is, is that showing up at the outset to kind of prove your mettle or prove your interest almost invariably requires discretionary effort. And that's hard. And then digging the time and finding the time, it can be a real challenge, but it's a must in an area that you're passionate about. And I think what prepared me best was being in the trenches, so to speak, teaching for a decade in, a, in the medical school and, and getting to know students and getting to understand the way that students here at Mayo learn and the way that the, the infrastructure is built around here to make them learn effectively or to allow them to learn effectively. And so I think that's really what I would advise anybody to do is just 
show up, show up to the meetings, show up to the events that the medical school has, faculty roundtables, things like that, volunteer your efforts. And typically that behavior is rewarded because when positions come available, the discussions around the table are like, you know, here are all these CVs. Wow, this guy or this gal, they're always around. <laughs> they're always showing up. They always want to be with our students or, you know, talking about our students and they've already given so much. And I think that goes a long way. I just want to underscore and highlight what you just said about the idea of showing up and just it ties back to your previous answer about really that role of role modeling and such, right? If we're showing yeah. up, we're getting to see who might be our mentors, who we want to follow after and understanding and, and learn some pearls from them in that in those situations. The other product of that is, is that if you've done that job, if you've been teaching for, for a decade or more, then you assume that leadership role with some degree of credibility with your colleagues. And you can go to them and when you're asking for change or when you're talking about how you're going to implement this or that, you can do so with some validity, right? People will look to you and say like, okay, all right, I, I know you know how hard this is. And you can speak to them authentically as well and say, look, I know what I'm asking you to do is a challenge. Here's how I'm going to manage it in my course, or here's how I would approach it. I'm here for you, those types of things. And that's it's really prerequisite, I think, because otherwise it just, it all feels like pronouncements or proclamations from on high without people who really know of the pains that it's going to cause. And that, that can create conflict and problems. I wanted to kind of bring us back as I close out this interview and kind of bring you back to your future predictions in your role now, like you say, there's no shortage of ideas. There's certainly lots of articles out there kind of forecasting what's on the horizon. You know what's in the hopper. You understand how things are prioritized. I was curious if you could kind of share with, with our audience, what do you think the future of, of medical education will look like? Yeah, the good news is, is I think it's super exciting. I think there's a lot of really great things on the horizon for us. I think friends in medical education in general, and especially at the curriculum, they tend to reflect our times. And I think there are two big areas that basically are the times we live in are demanding something new from our students. And the first is a better understanding and deeper dives into societal determinants of health, things like racism, sexism, economic disparity, differences in access to education, all of those things impact healthcare in myriad ways. And consequently, it's really necessary for our graduating students with an MD to have some understanding of these topics and where they affect things and how they determine health, how they drive our patients' access to healthcare and, and how their health is ultimately managed public health issues, advocacy, all of those things I think are really critical for graduating doctors today to understand. So I think there's a real trend to integrate those topics into every course longitudinally throughout the curriculum, not have like a single course called race in medicine or something like that, that simply isn't going to cut it. It's not sufficient. It would be a good start, I guess you could say, but really what the, the full incarnation or manifestation of that is going to be is recognizing that all those topics touch every facet of everything we do and figuring out how to integrate them and call them out in an intentional and deliberate way when talking with students and interacting with students so that they see the role that it plays in all those areas. I think the other big area is technology. 
it's the beast. It's a huge thing on two fronts. First of all, it's changing the way that our students learn. Technology always has transformed education and it's going to continue to do so, certainly no less in these pandemic times when we're leveraging Zoom and other things to do outreach. And it's also affecting practice, uh, by the way, you know, with global health, telemedicine, those types of things. Outreach technology is bridging a lot of those outreach gaps that have existed in the past. So leading from that, the other arm of technology is changing the way that we practice medicine. Artificial intelligence, machine learning, computational medicine, all of those are going to greatly impact how we practice medicine. And I am not one of those believers that these things are going to supplant or replace physicians. I think that concept, that notion is laughable. But I do think it's going to completely revolutionize what medicine looks like and how we practice medicine. And so the way that we interact with technology and leverage technology to do decision-making and um, to do data analysis and understanding, that is going to completely transform medicine for the better and really allow us to deliver better care to patients in a much more personalized way than we have in the past. And so our medical curriculum is going to have to reflect that. And we're going to have to have far more integration with technology in the curriculum and teach our Graduating students are going to have to understand big data in ways that they haven't in the past. They're going to have to understand how to be savvy consumers of medical literature in very different ways now than they have in the past as well. Not that that hasn't been important in the past, but it's going to take on new meaning with the sheer volume of data that we have to contend with. So I think there's some really big things on the horizon, and they're super, super exciting. I think it's, it's very bright. It's a very, very bright tomorrow. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And I think you hit on several wonderful themes for our audience to kind of take away, whether they're a student, whether they're a clinician, or whether they're a laboratory uh, professional. We hope you've all enjoyed listening. We've been rounding with Dr. Joseph Maloczewski on the pathologist's role in medical education. Thank you so much again for being here. Thanks, Dr. Kreuter. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please follow or subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm -hmm.